This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, a show that tries to be an incubator of great ideas and a place to challenge popular wisdom. And today, we're tackling the last chapter on community, and you'll get all this from a guy in the street perspective. But before we begin, hit the subscribe button, follow us on Facebook, and leave a five-star review to it up. And you are listening to the number two political podcast in Rwanda. That's a real thing, by the way. All right, all right, I'm glad to be back. Got held up with other obligations, and as, as much as I want to do the show, life gets in the way. With that being said, we are unfortunately winding down to the final episodes of this podcast. Aww. I know, I know. Where will the people of Rwanda get their American news? Also, the next episode will be our last before we move on to some maybe some video content, which will contain my finalization on my uh, thoughts on politics and society at large. And maybe when my life gets a little, uh, little less complicated, we'll move on to a new podcast focusing on pop culture and things like that. Because, uh, you know, let's face it, what you see on TV, movies, music, online content, it's all, uh, you know, in fairness, the drizzling shits. And I like listening to my own opinions, you know what I mean? This episode uh, is another big one that's taken a long time to put together, so get ready. Also, listen to episode number 19, the segment called A Drug Story, and you'll see how all these things connect. Okay, you waited long enough, so let's get this show on the road. But first, I have to give you the 2022 post-apocalypse update of 2022. So, I finally got around to watching uh, the movie The Eternals. This movie was billed by Marvel to be the most inclusive and diverse movie of all time because idiots on Twitter complained that they, uh, Marvel wasn't doing enough for the LGBTQ community because apparently that's Marvel's job now, you know? So I sat down and I watched it with my Christian conservative eyeballs, all ready to be offended, getting ready to write a strongly worded letter. And uh, you know what? It was an okay movie. I wouldn't watch it again or nothing, but there's a scene where the gay black dude kisses his husband before he runs out and saves the world. That's it. That was the most diverse thing I saw. Other than that, it's pretty much like any other comic movie. And Marvel was probably thinking, eh, that should shut up the woke supremacist. But here's the thing. It's not. Because no matter what you do, it's never enough. That's why, for me, they should take it as far as they can so these lunatics have nothing else to ask for. If I were the writer for Eternals, what I would have done towards the end of the movie is, right when the bad guy's about to, to destroy the planet, have the gay dude grab his husband and say, Hey, aliens, look at this. And then the dude kisses the tip of his husband's prick. And then the aliens are like, Ew, gay. So they leave. So one of the heroes goes up to the gay dude and he says to him, How'd you know that would work? And the gay dude says, Everyone knows aliens are homophobic. And then they burn a MAGA hat. The end. And then, just to make sure there's no further complaints that Marvel is not inclusive enough, I would redo the ending of Spider-Man and have a new villain show up called uh, the Human Centipede Man, who has the power to turn people into human centipedes. And from there, it's just multiple Spider-Mans blowing web flute out of their ass into the face of another Spider-Man for 90 minutes straight. Then maybe, just maybe, these woke idiots will stop ruining everything they touch. Then we can get movies where right is right, actors act, directors direct, without needing to fill a mandate of cramming a message to appease people who don't have the talent to create their own original material. And that was the 2022 post-apocalypse update of 2022. Okay, on to our last chapter of Community, a factory of broken codes and promises. We're going to go all over the place with this episode, so yeah, I, I got to make up for the last six months, so keep up. 
What is the major reason the prison population is so high compared to other countries? Now, prisons are a topic we've gone over quite a bit, and with all the reading and studying I've done, there seems to be a pretty solid answer. America is number one in prison population, and we are also number one in single-parent homes. Now, take a little of what I said in episode 19 about how we all have appetites for addiction, and that could be an addiction for drugs, money, trouble, sex, which are all things I lack, but we'll tackle that in our next podcast, Solving My Problems, and There's No Solutions. Anywho, without a two-parent household, or at least some sort of family structure that surrounds you with care to help suppress the parts of our addictive appetites and suppress the worst parts of ourselves, we are creating a recipe for disaster. Add to that our corporate-made deteriorating society, lack of morals, and broken and empty souls from a lack of historical religious institutions, and you have a world outside your door what people would call the drizzling shits. So now you have a drizzling shit society manufacturing the drizzling shit people, and which makes living in what you'd call a culture or what I'd call a slick shit stain on intellectual property an absolute uninhabitable mess that makes life difficult for any rational thinking human being. The only thing left for those kinds of people to do is start a podcast from a guy in the street perspective. Or do you think living in a culture where a number one hit song called WAP is great as a great diet for the country? I'm actually working on a song before someone beats me to it. It's called WAB, Wide Open Butthole. Get ready for it, because that's where we're heading. And I know what a lot of people, a lot of people are going to say. I listen to songs like WAP with lyrics way worse, and I grew up fine. First off, no, you didn't grow up fine. And second... Did you listen to racy music while your mom was in the room and while the songs played on regular TV? Or did you listen to it, listen to it in your car or in your room away from family because you knew they would not approve? Raunchy music has been around forever, but it was always treated as dessert, not a main course. Today, shit music is what's for dinner. Let's take a look at the numbers. Right now and for some time, 60% of prison inmates have no relationship with their fathers. Never met them, don't know them. Coming from a single-parent home increases the chances of committing crimes, drug abuse, which heightens the chance of getting locked up. Along with this is the increased risk of dropping out of school, living in poverty, getting depression, and committing suicide. And some of these negatives and more will outlive the child's youth and be carried on to adulthood. All these qualities lead to shittier communities. So let's break this down to what we're, what we're going to talk about, and it's what I call the factory the conveyor belt, and the product. The factory is made up of three parts. The family, the school, the streets. The three places a child will spend their time and absorb the environment there. The conveyor belt is the path set on when uh, the person leaves the factory. The product is the final man, or woman, or crumbling dog shit a person becomes. Got it? So the factory, as I just said, is made up of three things. We've already talked about the schools and the education series, so our focus is going to be on families and communities. Now, what are the reasons a child of the factory would grow up without a father? One major factor would be divorce. So, let's open up this can of worms. Currently, the divorce rate is about 45%. There are a lot of reasons for this, the biggest being getting married too young. However, I look at that and I say most marriages end because of the ignorance and lack of definition on the reasoning of marriage or of getting married. There are two reasons that stand side by side to get married. One, when you are a boyfriend, girlfriend, at any point, you can just leave. Simple as that. If the flaws of the individual become too overbearing, then you can just walk away. And we're all flawed, you know. However, when you want to get married, it's telling each other that 
No matter how many times the worst part of you rises to the top, I will not walk away. I will never leave you. That isn't an option on the table no longer. That is something that needs to be recognized by both sides. And that bleeds into the second reason, bringing kids into the world and letting that child know that no matter what, you will always be cared for by us. We will never just walk away from you. And despite the flaws you will develop from us, most likely, we will always care. That is a strongly built part of the factory. The way to build more is to simply change the culture's idea of marriage and define it. In today's society, that's a problem. There's a shift in thoughts towards marriage, particularly the liberal intelligentsia that is mostly made up of ignorant, hairy, large women. They point out marriage is, uh, they have pointed out that marriage is an institution based on control and domination and is even considered dangerous. A lot of this comes from the misery they feel and simply want company. But what about someone like comedian Bill Maher, who is 65, has no children, who at times speaks strongly against the idea of marriage? And even he would recognize that that's what works for him. But the reality is there's only four categorical things to do in life. Build a career, be creative, get married, raise children. That's it. Those are the things that will change the trajectory of your life. So if you decide not to get married and not to have kids, well, you just eliminate 50% of the things you can do in your life. So you better hope your career and your creativity is enough to sustain, sustain your life and create a meaningful life that can carry you for the next 20, 40 to 60 years. If you're Bill Maher, who is able to travel the country telling jokes, have a show where he can meet interesting people, and has millions of dollars to be able to afford someone, to have someone you know, wipe his ass when he, when he becomes a feeble old man, then yeah, you can have a very fulfilling life. He has that covered. Most people do not. Another problem while we're talking about marriage is that there are people who would like to get married, but can't make a relationship go the distance. That is, of course, the fault of women, as they are the natural leaders in relationships. Unfortunately, most women today can't handle that responsibility and have become, uh, shit, what's a good word? All right. There's only three qualities a woman should look for in a man, broadly speaking, of course. Number one, attractiveness. Number two, is he productive? Number three, is he kind enough to share? Women looking for those qualities will only create more men who fit that description. More men will become more productive, get off their ass, get off the couch, act like a decent person, and step in the shower once in a while so they don't look like trash. The question is, are those the qualities that women are looking for these days? Or are women more focused on sharing the same lifestyle? Hey, you smoke crack under a bridge? I smoke crack under a bridge. Let's have crack babies. Or whatever teenagers are into. Having similar lifestyles may help form a relationship, but can it be sustained for the long run? So this may be a reason for the failed relationships and marriages. Another fact on marriages is most divorce cases are filed by one side. Women! Why is that? Is it because we have a society that rewards women half of the guy's shits and shit in most divorce cases? If you subsidize something, you'll get more of it, right? So the easy solution would be the person who files gets nothing but their freedom to pursue another relationship. If there are children involved, then the child's time will be split between the parents. And that's it. Not based on how the judge feels that day. Now, what if cheating is involved? And maybe that's why women file for divorce more often. Cheating is defined as sleeping with another person. Well, if a married person cheats, then they should go to jail for 30 days or something. It's too big of a bond to just go unpunished. And then that's it. The marriage will be dissolved. If there is a child involved, then no jail but financial compensation would have to be made though the children's time should still be split between the two parents. However, 
If there is cheating due to a sexless marriage, meaning one person is never in the mood, then zero compensation or jail time should be given. You cannot have a marriage where there is only one thing on the menu and it's taken off the menu. It's a form of torture. It's not what any party signs up for. And it's one of the worst things you can do in marriage because there's nowhere else to go other than to cheat. Don't act surprised if he or she finds what they need from someone else. That's your fault. So if this happens to you, use your head next time for more things than one. Be a companion, not a captor. So that's all I have on divorce, but what are the other ways a child can be put in a fatherless situation? A lot of people point to the welfare system as a major contributor. The first federal welfare system started in 1935 under FDR's New Deal. He signed into law the Social Security Act, which was aimed at helping the disabled, the elderly, and the widows. In 1936, 162,000 households benefited. Now it's currently over 1.8 million. In the 1960s, changes were made to the welfare system by allowing people who weren't disabled, elderly, or widowed. By the 1970s, many news reports were covering how the welfare system may be leading to more fatherless homes as the new welfare policy allowed mothers to get assistance as long as there was no father in the home. Like I said, if you subsidize something, will you get more of it? This became a big issue at the time as crime caused by children and young adults were on the rise, which spurred on a movement of middle and upper class to move away from their homes and into safer communities, which would leave behind only the poor families which is one of the major factors of why you see areas around the country of poor communities today. In the 1980s began what people refer to as second wave feminism. Part of this new movement was the idea that moms don't need to have a father in the home to be a successful family, along with welfare being less stigmatized. As this idea became popular, the idea opposing it became unpopular. And then eventually even talking about the trouble in the welfare system will get you labeled a racist. Even though the majority of people on welfare are white, but once something is labeled racist, then it becomes an area no one wants to touch. Facts be damned. So, here's the way the welfare system works and how it makes it impossible to get off it. Let's say a single mom works at a coffee shop. And let's say she makes 15 grand a year. And then she receives 15 grand in housing assistance and food stamps. Grand total, $30,000 a year. Then one day her boss comes up to her and offers her a $5,000 raise and other bonuses. If this happens, she will decline it. Why? Because if she makes $20,000 in a year on her own, then she is completely cut off from any government assistance. So to the mom, it's a $10,000 decrease in pay. When there's a child's well-being at stake, it makes one not want to take any risk. So the need for welfare reform with a gradual decrease in benefits is absolutely vital to getting households out of poverty. We should not be a country that punishes people when they have success. But that's what we have in this country, and it's part of what's called the poverty industrial complex, or the poverty iron triangle. It's made up of the United States Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, which has an annual budget of $1.2 trillion. Another part of it is the state government, which will use some of that money as a revenue stream. And then the last part is you have the poverty industrial private contractors. Let's do some quick math. There are about 7 million households living in poverty. And let's say you were to give every poverty-stricken home $100,000 that would uh, and that, that would end poverty for them, right? Give them hundred grand. Okay, so if you did that, the total would be $700 billion for one year, one time. Now, I just told you the HHS has an annual budget of $1.2 trillion. That means every year. So that's almost $200,000 per household. Now, do you think that poor family got paid that much? 
No, the average family gets about 16k a year in benefits. It shows that you're you're being lied to about how your tax dollars are being spent. So where did all that where did all that money go? I, I don't know. It's, I'm starting to catch on. I'm starting to think the WWE is more real than our government. And the last part on why a child may grow up without a dad other than death is because sometimes people suck and you're better off without them. And a child can overcome this adversity as long as there's a grandfather, an uncle, a stepdad, or some sort of positive male guardian. But what if that's not the case? What if, uh, well, this is where the community should step in. Whether it's mentorship programs, big brother programs, or building coalitions of parents to help children struggling in the factory through no fault of their own. This will help mend our broken community. People just need direction on where to go and what they can do to be of help. Well, I think that covers the fatherless homes uh, being the, the largest reason why people end up in prison. But what about the other reasons that someone may end up in the clink? A decent portion of the prison population would be the mentally ill. Studies show about 500,000 are currently locked up. That's about 25% of the prison population. I don't think there's any secret that putting the mentally ill in prisons only makes things worse. However, these numbers that are presented by corporate news and advocacy groups are not exactly lies, but they're not the truth either. Only 5% of the mentally ill are locked up due to psychotic episodes. 90% were arrested for crimes unrelated to their illness. Depression doesn't force you to rob someone by gunpoint, for example. But advocacy groups and politicians push, push for prison reforms for the mentally ill with half-truths and bloated numbers. For the 5% that truly have no control over themselves, then they should be moved to a mental health facility where they can possibly be treated and allowed to re-enter society dependent on the severity of their crime. Those that cannot be treated are sadly burdens of the states and should be treated humanely. Not simply released on the streets, but given 24-hour care in a mental health facility. For the rest, well, they suffer the same fate as most people in prison, the failure of re rehabilitation. To go to prison means the factory has failed, the path or conveyor belt has led you to be put behind bars. I don't care much what happens to murderers, rapists, and molesters, each state should decide their fate. But as far as people who are going to regain their freedom after the prison stint, after their prison stint there needs to be real rehabilitation. The recidivism rate in America is 77%, meaning if 100 people are released from prison, 77 will return. So why is that? Well, as I said before, if you are a product of your environment, being released into the same environment isn't going to help. With that being said, how good is the environment in prison? There has to be a way to break that cycle of bad environment to bad environment to back to bad environment. In no way, they changed one of their prisons into a place that looks like living into a, a condo with an effort in teaching prisoners a skill. The reasoning behind this was that the punishment for the, their crime is being separated from friends, family, and the outside world. And creating a normal, livable space will hopefully show criminals what a, what a good environment looks like. So what are the results? The recidivism rate went down to 33%. A major refocus on what the purpose of prison is is an absolute must if you, if you don't want your town or city turning into L.A., which is on its way to ruin. If you were to look at any dangerous part of a city, the population of dangerous criminals that are tearing it apart would be at most 0.3%. The idea is to remove that percentage and rehabilitate them. While that happens, rebuild the physical and social infrastructure of the environment. So when people are released from prison, they are released into a better made community and hopefully set on a better path. It's a big goal, but that is the goal. 
So there is one more major group of people that end up in prison, and they make up uh, a little of every group I've covered. They are a large group found all over the world. Some people think their lives don't matter, and some people want to pretend they don't exist. A very discriminated group. A group that nobody has an answer for, and that is stupid people. 10% of the population has an IQ under 80. Having an IQ below 80 means you can't even bag groceries without feeling overstressed by the workload. Nobody in the world has an answer for these people. What do you do with these people? One side will say everyone has a right to a job or pretend low IQ people don't exist. And the other side will say, get a job and stop being stupid. None of that is a possibility and it's never going away. We will always have a population with people born with a low IQ. It will be around 10%. There is never going to be a politician that runs on a platform called Dumb Lives Matter. And not all but some find themselves in prison. I'm sure you've watched uh, America's Dumbest Criminals or seen videos of criminals getting caught doing something stupid. And you probably thought to yourself, what the hell were they thinking? Well, now you know. They weren't. So... Other than illegal immigrants and people who break tax laws, I think I, I thoroughly covered our prison population and the reasons that lead to the high population. But let's continue with this thread of the factory conveyor belt and the product. On the conveyor belt side of things, what happens if the school, the family, and the community has failed? And you are now left, you have left the factory and you are on a potentially dangerous path. The question really becomes, where are you learning moral decency, if not from the factory? Where do you learn good social behavior? Well, before I answer that, I, I think most people would say we are in a, a moral decline. Though, if you look at some of the social issues for various lifestyles, you'd be hard-pressed to say that things haven't gotten better for them. Life is tough. Life is hard. Life is, you know, difficult. And when you don't easily fit into societal uh, norms, it gets that much more difficult. And culturally, things have gotten more accepting for people in, say, the LGBTQ community on a societal level. But unfortunately, on a political level, that particular movement should be called the Rainbow Jihad. Let's dig into this for a sec and piss some people off, too. This is a group that pushes policies to allow a boy who put on pigtails and a dress and claimed to be a girl to be allowed to use the girl's bathroom at a high school. This policy is where the same boy would go on and rape a young girl in Loudoun County, Loudoun County, Virginia. The good news, he was arrested. The bad news, this was allegedly the third girl he'd raped because the school board was too afraid to report the first two to the authorities because of their fear of being labeled transphobic and the trans backlash. Or what about the story of a 12-year-old boy who thought he may be a trans girl? After only two visits with a doctor, he had his private surgically removed, only to immediately regret it, and is now suicidal when he wasn't before. He said, quote, I just want to feel normal again. And that happened because all around the country, there is a big push for doctors and psychologists to simply confirm the individual's identity, rather than question or help. Or you could lose your medical license if you do. So the treatment towards people in the alphabet community has gotten better, but on a political level, it's a drizzling shits. Back to the moral argument. Back in the 1960s, women weren't allowed on the beach if they showed more than the upper part of their ankle. Now that's changed. Is that a sign of moral decline or a sign of progress and freedom? I talked about in episode 16 that freedom and order are great things, but we should always question who's in charge of the order. Who gets to say what's moral? 
For example, if I were in charge of the order, I would force women at the beach to wear nothing more than a bathing suit of armor made of stainless steel painted black. But I guess I'm old-fashioned that way. So when we say we are in a moral decline or a social decline, where is that mostly coming from? My guess is social media plays a role in that idea. For the most part, Facebook is used as it's intended for, which is a yearbook come to life, which is great, and the conversations are usually kept fun, and there's plenty of support given when needed. That's not to say Facebook is perfect, far from it, but it's not as bad as its competitor, Twitter. Twitter is the dirty, open asshole of the internet. It's all things that are horrible about the internet put on one site. The amount of death threats that are posted to celebrities and politicians and to people who simply disagree with one another is absurd. I'll give you an example. A few years back, a senator from Kentucky, Rand Paul, was tackled outside his house by his crazy neighbor. He was hit hard enough that his ribs punctured his lungs. Fast forward to recently, you can go on his Twitter page and every time he posts a tweet, without fail, someone has got to say something along the lines of, I wish your neighbor killed you, or I hope you're attacked again and die. Now, here's the thing. If you were to call a sitting senator and wish him death, you'd probably go to jail. If you wrote him a letter making the same threat, you'd at least get a knock on the door by the authorities. But if it's on Twitter, for everyone to see, you can write down, I hope you get murdered, and directly send it to the person you hope gets murdered, and you're fine for some reason. Who made that okay? And because you feel like you can get away with saying anything, that kind of shit spills out into the real world. You got psychos acting out their online wet dreams in the real world. And this type of dialogue is where a small but loud group learns moral behavior. On the other hand, a lot of people see this dialogue and think the whole country behaves this way, which isn't true. So maybe the moral decline isn't as bad as it seems, it's just in your face all the time, which is creating our vision of society. That being said, let's go back to the original question, where do you learn good behavior if not from the factory? I think the number one place is, or at least was, television. And unfortunately for today's America, Danny Tanner and Uncle Phil are dead. There's no Carl Winslow, Dan Connor, or hell, even Al Bundy could teach a few things about life, but that's no more for this generation. From Leave it to Beaver to The Cosby Show to Step by Step, there's always been a strong staple of family comedy sitcoms that provide an example of a moral family that sticks together. Today, the most popular show f shows for teens are Stranger Things and Big Mouth. It's not a knock against those shows, but you're not exactly learning any family values. I would say family sitcoms aren't dead, but I think we can certainly agree they are on life support. Now, how to fix that in a time of streaming services, multiple cable channels, and declining viewership on regular TV isn't something I have an answer for. The world has moved on, and society is not better for it. We haven't found a replacement for it yet. So, on to the final part of this episode, the product. Now, not all people who are on a bad path are going to let their addictions kill them or end up in prison. Some people might be lucky enough to become a sponge that slows down the progress and steals time from others. In the science community, these people are called scumbags, and they should be avoided at all costs. How can people be okay with themselves, with their failed lifestyles and failed choices that makes them dependent on others? Other people who have their own lives to deal with, but have to drop everything to carry a full-grown adult on their back just to help them with their life. A life that they don't even care about. And the reality is, good people are not going to turn their back on those kinds of people. That's what makes you a good person. So my advice is, say if you're one of these kinds of people need a place to stay and you even place the crash, just wait an hour and a half till they've fallen into a deep sleep. From there, locate the lowest part of their ribcage, 
where the ribs are kind of flexible. And just to make yourself feel good, just punch them right there with all your might. So the last group we're going to talk about is the homeless. America has 560,000 homeless people on the streets. Typically, they fit into three categories. The mental and physically ill, the drug and alcohol addicted, and people who have lost their will to function in the society. The homeless are another group that are taken advantage of by corrupt government spending in the poverty industrial complex. Over the last 10 years, taxpayers have given enough money for every homeless person to have their own private villa on their own private island on their own private planet. Yet, consistently, we have around the same number of homeless people every year. The solution will only come, will only come from the community. The solution is local. If you were to take all the people from age 20 to 50 in America, that would give you around 200 people for every one homeless person. You're telling me 200 people can't solve one person's problem. 200 people can't find a person a job if they have a physical disability. 200 people can't donate $5 a month to pay for rehab if that's what they need. Or donate a couple of dollars to pay for their rent for a few months till they get on their feet. 200 people can't find the time to give a helping hand to a vet who really needs it. 200 people can't show a homeless person that their life has value. And how tough would it be to build a website so volunteers could sign up? If the government does it, probably $1.2 trillion. So that's my spiel on the failure of family and community. And I say all this out of hopes that things will change. And I believe they will. That's what the show has typically been about. To take a look at things that are broken and come up with a solution that would have a positive outcome. But then in my research for this episode, I ran to a documentary from 50 years ago. I'll end this episode with a clip from it, and for me, it left me with a question. Will things change for the better, or are we doomed to a society of broken codes and promises? And that was Solving Problems and Starting Rules. Until next time. worked with uh, middle-class families who uh, lack all kinds of things, not money, not social position, not professional attainment, but have a sense of estrangement, a sense of uprootedness, a sense of not belonging to any particular community, a feeling that they're at the mercy of the next job move, that they're at the mercy of the next economic cycle, so to speak, that requires them to go here or there. And also, I think, there's a, a deep and abiding sense of aloneness, which they don't know, the parents don't know whom they can talk with and whom they really trust. And I think that if children are deprived of the things they need, both physically and psychologically at a young age, that there comes a point in which they cannot be redeemed. And I would use that word redeemed in all of its psychological and spiritual implications. They become hopelessly thwarted, stymied, atrophied. The heart dies, the mind becomes filled with all of the hate or fear the child has experienced. And multiply this child by many child, and we have many sins. And multiply this enough, and I think you have national sins, not just the individual sins that we all commit from day to day, but a national failure of determination, an ethical failure, and in many respects, a, kind, a slow kind of suicide in which one generation permits another generation in significant numbers to be hurt and uh, killed, I would say, in spirit.